1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya, I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. I have been playing with a program this week that really caught my attention. Now, if you're not a person that keeps a journal or has ever tried journaling, I want to encourage you to do so. Up until recently, I've been using a program called Lifeograph, and I really like Lifograph. I think it's a really great application that does a good job of keeping my uh, my personal journal um, private, in, and it stores it in a very easy file format that I can just move around from machine to machine. But there are some shortcomings. The first is it doesn't really have a great—they tried to implement an organizational method— um, and I don't I never really bought into it their way that you create chapters and sections and stuff like that. It just didn't, it was almost too complicated, to be honest with you. The second thing is, and I know this is going to be a first world problem. It is a first world problem. I am kind of a princess, but I like my applications to be dark themed and life at least in its current iteration, as best I can find, does not have a dark theme. And so it it prevents me from using it, uh, you know, in the middle of the night or late at night or early in the morning when I just either wake up or I'm just ready to get in bed because it's just not an inviting interface. Well, recently I came across a new application that has replaced journaling for me. And the chat room seems to agree that, uh, that, that dark theme is the win came across a new application for doing journal. It's called mini mini diary. You can learn more at mini diary.app. That's M I N I D I A R Y.app. Um, Things I like. First of all, very easy to install. It's produced as a snap package, so you can sudo snap install mini diary. Um, that also means because it's a snap package that updates are going to be handled for me and be taken care of for me. I like that. It's a very, very fast application. It is phenomenally fast. You click on it, it opens up immediately the way that they store the information is very interesting. It's not quite as streamlined as Lifograph was, but what it allows me to do is specify a directory in which I want to store the file. The file is then stored. Um, it takes over that directory and stores a minidiary.txt file, but the contents of minidiary.txt are, in fact, encrypted. Now, I am st- uh, the because it's a snap package and because of the confinement capabilities, there are some limitations. It doesn't allow me to save to a NAS, so I'm not able to save it over an NFS share. I couldn't find a way to save it over a Samba share. Um so that was a little bit disappointing. It would have been nice to be able to access that from multiple machines, but for what it is, I can appreciate it. I'm going to try to see if I can store it maybe on a on a on like a small removable flash drive and carry it around with me. The interface is stellar. Stellar, I tell you. It's just unbelievably good. Um you're presented with a simple UI with a calendar. By default, it's going to choose the current date. You have a simple text editor that you can just type away. Much like Sublime Text, much like CodeMD, much like a lot of the other text editors that are out there, it doesn't require any specific action to save. That means that every time you type, that, that content is, is written uh, to the disk. And so I don't have to worry about, have I saved it? Can I close it? Is it still open? Did I have a bunch of stuff in there? Works phenomenally from that perspective. The other thing, this is, if you ever wondered when you hear me talk about privacy, online privacy and privacy policies, if you've ever said to yourself, self, I wonder what Noah considers to be the best privacy policy. What does he really look for in a privacy policy? Mini Diary should be the example. Here is their privacy policy in its entirety. And the fact that I can read this on the air during a radio show should tell you uh, how concise it is. Quote, the Mini Diary app website uses Phantom Analytics. Phantom Analytics is a website analytics software that tracks and reports aggregate website traffic without compromising your privacy. Fathom only reports on aggregate, so no information specific to the website visitor is ever tracked or recorded. You can opt out of Fathom software by enabling the Do Not Track in your browser settings. That's it. That's it. Oh, and then there's another addendum desktop application. The mini diary desktop application does not collect any personal information. That's what you should see in a privacy policy. Hey, we don't want your information. We want to know how many people are visiting our website. We've done that in the most privacy respecting way that we possibly can. And if you don't want us to do that, here's the way to opt out of that. Fantastic privacy policy. They, um, the, they have light and dark themes. They support encryption. It supports basic text formatting, uh, full text search, localization in multiple languages, statistics. You can import from various apps. You can export to various uh, formats. You can export to a PDF, markdown, etc. Um, I, I, I just, there are so many applications that I come across that I'm like, I could take it or leave it. Mini Diary is here to stay for sure. Um, if you haven't journaled before, If you're not a person that has tried this, I highly recommend it, particularly if you work in the tech space. Here's why. I have a very poor memory. Anybody that's worked with me for any length of time will tell you that Noah has the memory of a goldfish. And during the course of my day, almost all day long, I come across random little tidbits of information. Oh, that's how that works. Oh, that's how that works. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, this is where I can get that. I came across a Todoist uh, Chrome app that not just the the extension, but an actual Chrome app so that it can run, have its own desktop icon, so on and so forth. This is not search. I can't find it anywhere on Google, but I found it in an obscure forum post and I just wanted to save that link. Um, oftentimes I have no place to dump that information and I certainly have no way to go back and search. Hey, you know, I remember a couple of days ago I was just looking at something like that. I, I wish I could remember where I saw that. I leave mini diary opening uh, opened up on one of my third monitors. And as I come across information like that, I just start dumping it into the uh, into the uh, into mini diary. I don't pay attention to I have to save it. I don't pay attention to categorizing it. All I do is just that day. Everything I did that day gets recorded into mini diary at any point in the future. I can I can just click on the day and I can go back through. Well, here's what I did that day. It's I thought fo- I've also found it very beneficial from a health perspective, being able to t- keep track and kind of notate. Hey, this is what uh, this. Are, these are the hours that I work. These are the hours that I sleep. These are the times that I seem to have available to eat. These are the times that it seemed to work well for me to do community things and engage with the community and actually spend some time in our Telegram chat and communicate with the thousands of people that are in there. Um Those kinds of things stand out to me. Once you're actually writing them down and you can go back through the other thing that I found to be remarkably useful. And I think this is anybody who has not considered journaling should really consider this as a betterment to their life. When you document what it is you do and and, and what your daily process looks like, you start to see problems stand out. Hey, I spend a disproportional amount of my day doing X. I wish there, I should solve that. How many times does that come up? Similarly. I have a new idea every 10 minutes, right? I'm oh, this could fix this. That could fix this. And so I buy random things or build random things. What I have found after using Dryer for a few weeks and documenting my life as I'm going through is that I can look back and say, yes, I spent X amount of dollars on that chair, that keyboard, that mouse, whatever it is. And it's fundamentally enabling me to get more work done because now I can do X, Y, and Z. And going through my diary and being able to look back and saying, oh, yeah, that worked. Oh, yeah, that happened. Yeah. Look at all the times that I was able to make that work. Look at all the times that that provided a benefit to me. That was really worth the money. This thing over here, I installed it once. I haven't once talked about it or noticed it or whatever. It doesn't make a single entry in my diary. That thing probably was a waste of money. And for, you know, just doing show prep and just having the ability for somebody to ask, hey, you were at this client and didn't you do this or were you over here? Well, I remember some things about that day. Let me go through my diary and look. Let me see what I was doing. Let me see what things, what commands I was running, what things I came across on the Internet. Absolutely a fantastic habit, if you ask me. Um, Of course, the danger with it is from a data privacy standpoint, of course, you wouldn't want. Uh, Anybody else to ever get access to the data because it's personal in nature and very revealing about you as a person, so on and so forth. And so you want that information to be local. You don't want it synced around the Internet. You want it to be private. You want it to be encrypted. And Mini Diary checks all of those boxes in spades. They don't sync anything. It doesn't touch the Internet. It's just a nice little local file that lives on your computer that's encrypted. Um, One of the best uh, devices out there, only second to a stool. Uh, if you have a stool, that's a, that's a better device, but mini diary, um, second best thing that you could invest some money in. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH, it's one 450 6624 the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Another app I came across this week that I thought you might be interested in is FreeEck. Uh, FreeEck is a free audio encoder, or transcoder as it were, that's available for macOS, Linux, and Windows. Um, they have 64-bit avail- uh, versions available for all of those operating systems. They do support dark mode on Windows and macOS, best of my knowledge, they do not support dark mode on Linux um, and what it allows you to do is it supports codecs, uh, Opus, Apple, Apple Lossless, Monkey Audio, WavePack, many others, um, and you have the ability to transcode audio. So our producer actually uses it all the time to download YouTube videos and then convert those M4A YouTube videos into MP3s. Now, certainly you could do something similar with FFmpeg or you could pull it into Audacity and do it. But having a dedicated uh, encoder that's open source and specifically designed to preserve as much of the audio quality as you can uh, and convert from one Kodak to another is a useful tool to have in the toolbox. It does support multi-channel audio. It it supports managing multiple configurations and it also supports log files. So if you have a problem with an audio file um, and this is something I've run into more than once where something doesn't work and I don't know why it doesn't work. So I have a difficult time troubleshooting the problem uh, free act is not going to be that that program I would invite you to check out both of those applications I will have them linked in the show notes you can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com we have some more information on the earn it act we talked about that a few weeks ago the earn it act is Congress's latest attempt to try to ban encryption now they're not saying directly that they're going to ban encryption they're going about it in a fairly sneaky way um, to understand that, we, ta- we look back to the 1990s. Congress passed several laws that shaped the Internet, uh, specifically Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Now, Section 230, in essence, says that online platforms such as providers, interactive computer services, mostly can't be held liable for the things that the users say and do on their platform. Now, this makes sense. If you're on Twitter and you upload a provocative photo that violates the terms of Twitter— or maybe even violates the law, you as a user can be held accountable for the content that you put on a website. Twitter, however, cannot be held liable for the content that you put up on the internet on their platform. Now, this is a necessary part of our legal system because in the absence of Section 230, nobody would start Twitter. Nobody would start Facebook. Nobody would start YouTube. Why? There would be too much liability associated with it. It is simply impossible to pay people to keep a careful enough eye on what people are doing on the Internet as to screen every single piece of content that comes online. The only way that this can be done is when automated algorithms and and moderators do find content that they report it to the police. Now, the Communications Assistant for Law Enforcement Act of 1994, commonly abbreviated KALIA for short, requires telecommunication carriers to uh, or excuse me, I'm, I'm skipping over something. Um, the 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 way that Section 230 is structured legally, it allows not only allows it encourages companies who find um, explicit material on their site to report it to law enforcement. Now, when that occurs, the site itself is is completely indemnified from being prosecuted and from civil lawsuits. And the idea here is that if these websites are cooperating by providing the evidence to police and preserving, which is now evidence, um, to the police, and then providing ev- any evidence they can about the bad actors, we should not be going after the um, the 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 platform. We should going we should be going after the individual people. Now, the Communication Assistance for Law Enforcement Act of 1994, abbreviated Calia Uh, requires telecommunication carriers, that is to say, phone companies, uh, so on and so forth, to make their networks wiretappable for law enforcement. Now, I understand uh, up till this point why we have these laws in place, because the truth is, if you go to a judge... And you make a case that somebody has violated the law and you wish to collect evidence on that person. You followed the warrant process. You've provided um, probable cause. A judge has signed a warrant saying that they have the authorization to do this. And now you've gone to the phone company and said, we would like to listen into this person's call. There is nothing wrong with that. That perfectly follows the legal system. And there is nothing about the Fourth Amendment that should provide for a shroud for illegal activity. If you're doing something illegal, you deserve to be arrested and put in jail. But there is a process to be followed. However, that mandate does not cover information services. That means websites, email, social media, chat apps, cloud storage. All of that is not included. It's kind of carved out. And the reason for that is think about the technological mountain that you'd have to climb in order to provide some sort of a system for every law enforcement officer to be able to access any part of a given technological system. It's not practical. It's not practical when it comes to phones. They're simple and dumb enough that you can simply take a vampire tap and stab it through some wires. And now you've created a parallel electrical connection that can mimic the original electrical connection. But how do you plan to do that unless you have access to an individual user's, uh, basically their switch or their hub. You'd have to have internal access to their network. And the only other way to go about doing that is compromise them on the back end. Now, Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal are seeking to do just that. The child sex abuse material, abbreviated CSAM, That is the fundamental driving force of this bill. Now, the idea of this bill is to create a federal commission, an unelected federal commission that will develop, quote unquote, best practices for combating CSAM online, which online services will provide and have to provide or follow or they risk losing their Section 230 immunity to CSAM claims. Now, again, Nothing is stopping these people. Nothing is stopping these people. In fact, there's already existing federal statutory uh, schemes criminalizing CSAM and imposing duties on providers. They already tell these providers, hey, uh, and this is, I believe I have this noted, uh, Chapter 110 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code already makes everything about CSAM a crime, producing, receiving, accessing, viewing, uh, presenting. Uh, processing, uh, distributing, uh, selling, you name it. If it has to do with explicit content for children, it's illegal and it should be. And these people, again, should be buried underneath the prison. I have absolutely no sympathy for these people. But Section 225A goes even further. It imposes duties on the online service providers such as Facebook, Tumblr, Dropbox, so on and so forth. The law mandates that if they come across CSAM in their services, then they must preserve the evidence and give it to law enforcement. If providers preserve the evidence in accordance with the law, then they're protected from legal liability, and that covers both civil and criminal in both federal and state courts. Um, The problem is Section 230 does not, or well, Section 230 does not keep prosecutors from holding providers accountable for CSAM on their services. It just means that if they're cooperating and doing everything in their power to help prosecute these people, that they... Have immunity now. What this bill is trying to do specifically is force companies to earn their Section Two Thirty immunity. That is to say, we are going to give you a list of things that you have to follow. If you follow it, you will continue to receive the benefits of Section Two Thirty. If you don't follow it, then the the two the, then the Section Two Thirty immunity is removed, and you can be prosecuted as a platform for hosting this kind of content. Compliance with quote unquote recommended best practices is what I have a problem with because this is going to be decided by a new 15-member commission. Unelected people who, who knows what their motivations are. I could speculate all day, but the truth is I don't know and you don't know what their motivations are and frankly, it shouldn't matter. Where this comes back to encryption, encryption, particularly end-to-end encryption, is almost certainly going to be the center of this bill. It's going to be the center of best practices. Why? Because any sort of best practices you can come up with in order to identify material that you don't want on your platform at a very basic level you have to first be able to see the content before you're able to scan for it and and find a match and then follow all the other steps if the content is encrypted from 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 the get go the this entire build would really do nothing you can go ahead and come up with the best best practices, but if all the content is encrypted, you can't really apply most of the best practices, at least none of them that would be any use in tracking down an individual that is committing a crime. The commission would include at least four law enforcement reps, four tech industry reps, four reps of child safety organizations, and two computer scientists and software engineer experts. Notice that there is no mention of representation of the citizenry there's no representation of the users there's no representation from the aclu or from anybody representing civil liberties we are not concerned about your first amendment rights about your fourth amendment rights what we're concerned about is creating a new tool that allows the government to bypass or force companies to bypass encryption in order to keep their immunity in section 230 so we just—I'm going to cover this from time to time because it's just disgusting that every time we turn around, there is another bill that is trying to remove a person's ability and trying to hamper the privacy—the privacy tools that we have gained in a post Snowden world. Nobody used encryption uh, back in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand six. Nobody cared. And what happened after Snowden released the the documents that he released is we learned how important encryption is and how every government agency, not just the U.S., but governments abroad, the five eyes, as it were, are going to take advantage of the fact that people don't use encryption so that they can get access to customer data and so that they can get access to your data and really so that they can't be locked out of anything. So I would strongly suggest, strongly suggest in the most strongest possible terms that we fight this bill and we fight anybody that supports this bill. In other news, Warren, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who has since dropped out of the presidential race, has open sourced all of the software that her campaign has been using. Their campaign organizers noticed that the onboarding process, for example, for new volunteers needed a more personal touch than a system that they were using that came off the shelf. And when a new volunteer signed up, they would only receive an automated message. So the team built this tool that they called Switchboard, and Switchboard made it easy for organizers to personally reach out to volunteers as soon as they signed up for the campaign. Uh, They also had projects um, that included an automated message system that sent location-specific events, emails to volunteers, and a back-end tool for synthesizing different streams of voter data. Um, there was also a, uh, there was also a app or a a software platform that they were using that used peer to peer texting that sent texts, uh, for one thirty second the cost of what it would cost with a traditional commercial vendor, saving the campaign over $500,000, uh, over the course of just a couple of weeks. And they released all of this stuff up on GitHub after she dropped out of the race. So, um, Whatever your view on Elizabeth Warren and her politics are, this is a very, very cool thing that she has done, and she is truly giving back to the technology community and the open source community and allowing the next candidate that comes up that wants to run for office to take advantage of some of these very powerful tools that a woman in her position had the money to fund, had the connections to build, and now they're available to everybody. If only this could take off, I would, oh my gosh, it would be so great. Uh, A article that we're going to have linked in the uh, show notes, it's a little too long to dig into with uh, with any um, with any meat. And we also have some guests that we want to get to this hour. Um, But there is an article titled. Who's most responsible for your data privacy protection, government companies or you? And um, they cover the fact that 2019 was dubbed the worst year on record for data breaches. And risk-based security in their quarter three report. By the end of the year, they had endured. We had endured over 15.1 billion exposed records of personal information. That's a 284 percent increase from 2018. Now, you might say to yourself, "Well, I just use big companies that uh, that that take security seriously. I know they take security seriously because they send me an email once every six hours to let me know that they're taking my privacy seriously." But Facebook is included in this. Capital One is included in this. Adobe, the American Medical Collection Association, they all suffered data breaches back in 2019. 350 million customers in the last year alone were the victim of cybercrime and nearly 46 million consumers were the victim of identity theft. Um, They define the role of government um, and actually go through case by case. Again, like I say, it's a little bit too long for us to cover in depth on the show, but They go through and define case by case and what role the government played, the corporation played, and what role the user had to play. So, for example, in July of 2019, the Federal Trade Commission fined Facebook $5 billion for deceiving users about their ability to control their privacy and their personal information, violating a 2012 privacy consent decree. And now this was the largest fine ever issued in the history of a company that they had to pay for violating consumers' privacy and one of the highest penalties ever imposed by the U.S. government. Um, As it relates to the role of the corporation, within the last year or so, Apple has incorporated privacy as a central feature of its product offerings with its own dedicated page. Apple describes the measure to which the company goes to protect its users' privacy, yet some critique the tech tech giant for touting data privacy while also enabling bad behavior by third-party developers on its platforms. Additionally, Apple has notoriously been in battle with the FBI over refusing to lock iPhones belonging to terrorist suspects, sparking national debate over what information should be available to law enforcement. It's important to note that Apple, while it's true that they made a very public debate on on, on. Standing their ground not to unlock the iPhone for the FBI very willingly gave the FBI all of the users iCloud data, which is essentially a duplicate of what's on the iPhone to begin with. So all of these companies, big or small, have problems uh, respecting users' privacy, partly because it's not uh, popular to do it from a legal perspective and also because it's very expensive. Uh, It's very cheap if you can offload the cost onto advertisers and have them sell the user data and and use that to fund your model. So uh, again, a really a rip and good read. If you have some spare time, I highly suggest you dig into it. If you take data security seriously, um, then you'll want to, then you'll want to check this out. Uh, Our guests this hour is uh, Dago Red and Warhead SE. They are two members of the Ask community, literally been around since day one, Um, One of the first people, one of the first groups of people that I had on the show, Uh, I meet up with them itself every single year, and we're going to be talking about some very interesting things. Essentially, what happened is a discussion broke out in the Telegram group this week. And if you're not a part of Interactive Telegram group, I highly suggest you join at telegram.asknoahshow.com. There is always a good discussion coming along. and. Warhead SE asked a question. He came across a very obscure troubleshooting shooting situation and asked in the chat room, "Hey, I figured this out. Does anybody else know?" And a couple of people took a crack at it. I don't know if anybody actually ever figured it out. And Dago Red, who is a, an electrical engineer by trade and just an all around great guy and a super uh, and a super enthusiastic Linux nerd, um, he and Warhead SE went back and forth a while trying to debate this issue. And uh, they looped me in on the conversation and I really didn't have any idea. And we got to the end of it and I said, you know, I would love it if you guys would come onto the show and talk about your problem solving workflow, because the way that they address this problem and the way that they go about the process of solving the problem is something that I find very valuable. I've asked Warhead SE on numerous occasions to help me fix a problem or at least wrap my head around a problem. And he's very good at starting with, well, let's start with what you know. And let's figure the problem out from there. And as being a very intelligent guy himself, uh, he's able to work through some very complicated problems. Now, I need to give you a little bit of basic information um, so that we can have this discussion because these guys, they really like to they really like to talk it up. Um, If you're not familiar with the OSI layers, we've not covered it on the show before, but I'm going to give you your 30 second tutorial on OSI layers. Layer one. Is the physical layer. And this is essentially the Ethernet cable between um, your computer between your network card and and the uh, and the switch. It's the physical layer that that connects devices Um, above that we have layer two and that's the data link layer. This is what's preparing the data for transmission. And uh, an example of a layer two device um, might be something like a like a switch. A Layer 3 device is network, and it provides logical addressing. So this is where we get into things like routing, so on and so forth. Layer 4 is the transport layer that breaks the data stream into smaller segments and provides reliable and unreliable data delivery. Layer 5 is the session layer, which initiates and terminates the session with the remote system. Layer 6 is the presentation layer. It encrypts formats and compresses the data for transmission. And finally, we have Layer 7, which is the application layer. This is what provides the user interface to send and receive data. Now, why am I explaining what this model is and how do you apply it in in in, uh, in real life? We use the OSI layer anytime we're troubleshooting network things because the OSI layer gives us an idea of where to look. If we can identify something as a layer one problem, we don't bother trying to adjust the IP address or the subnet mask. No, it's not a layer three issue. We have uh, uh, an ethernet cable that has a clipped end or, or a wire that's broken. And so we don't bother looking at a trace route. We don't bother at looking at uh, the IP config Anything like that. No, we're paying attention to the physical cable and it's important that you understand where to look. And so the OSI layer and the OSI model can be a very effective tool at troubleshooting. MAC addresses, for example, are a layer two address. It can't transition a layer three device. And so this is why when you get those calls from a Microsoft call center and they go, your MAC address was found and it was seen to be using for malicious activity, you can just tell them, no, that's not possible. My MAC address is on my local LAN. It doesn't transition my router. My router is a layer three device. My MAC address can't leave it unless there's, you know, special software to transmit it. But by default, the TCP header packet is not going to include the MAC address. It's just not. Switches uh, are traditionally uh, layer two devices. Um, There is such a thing as a layer three switch or a multi-layer switch. Um, As you might, as you might guess, they do a lot of the same stuff that routers do. Uh, Both can support uh, both routers and layer three switches can support routing protocols. They are able to, um, inspect incoming packets for example they can make dynamic routing decisions based on the source and destination the advantage of a layer 3 switch and I, I it's it's weird that more networking questions have never come up on the show since i spend the majority of my day fixing networks and weirdly enough we don't talk about it very much um one of the one of the things that comes up to clients when i pitch them a layer 3 switch is they go well, wow I want that i already have a router what do i need a layer 3 switch for And uh, the main advantage of a layer three switch over a router is in the way that those routing decisions are performed. A layer three switch are going to be less likely to experience network latency since packets, they don't have to, they don't have to, they don't have additional steps. They don't have to go through a router. They're just going from one switch port to the other. So with, with that understanding of the OSI model and how we use it for troubleshooting, I'd like to welcome Dago Red and, um, Warhead SE into the Ask Noah show. Welcome, guys. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thank you. Hey, Noah. All right. So I want to start with this. Dago Red, you, uh, you, you started this conversation off when we were talking the other day about problem solving. Talk to me about the the art and nature of problem solving.
0: It's a root cause analysis. Um, basically, you can solve a problem now, but it may come back, uh, kind of thing. But when you actually solve the root problem, one the root cause may be actually a lot simpler to solve than trying to handle some of the the each individual symptoms that you see as well as it's a permanent fix to keep a problem from reoccurring
1: now warhead uh i I guess let's let's start at the beginning you were working uh on a situation for a friend or for work and you came across a situation tell me about the problem that uh that initially sparked this discussion
2: Yeah, so I had a coworker pose me a quick question, and they were asking, has anybody ever seen this happen with their router? And it's a very common model for our uh, company as well as some of the members of this community. I'm not going to mention it particularly. But they asked, have you ever seen this happen? Every two to four hours, for some reason, both ports on my router flap. What he meant by flap is he would lose network for about 10 seconds. don't know why it's happening. But it happens more often when there's more traffic, but it always happens at least six times a day.
1: And, you, you know, and, and so when you posted this question in our interactive telegram group, there were a lot of people that said, well, have you looked at the logs? And have you looked at this? And have you SSH into that? And have you, and you said, no, nah, I didn't do any of that. I knew what the problem was instantaneously right off the top of my head. What was the mental process that you went through to solve this problem?
2: Well, actually, I didn't know it right away. I The first thing I did was, okay, let's start at the ground up, right? As you mentioned with the OSI layers, right? We're going to start at level one. We'll go up to le- to level seven, and we'll figure out where we need to care. So my first question was, okay, so that's your device. What's attached to it? And they tell me, you know, it's a it's a modem and a switch, one to each port. Okay, cool. What kind of cables are you using? And they say, oh, well, I'm using these nice, high-grade, pre-manufactured, shielded, foiled, twisted pair cables. I went, okay, great. That sounds like you went and got some really nice equipment. Yep, I think so. So why was my next question,
1: why do you use those cables? And uh, I, I guess uh, Dago, if you want to jump in here, could you explain um, from an electrical perspective what was occurring?
0: Well, I'll admit during that conversation initially, I was trying to get caught up because um, I got kind of pinged out of the blue. But um, what was occurring was uh, basically it was a grounding issue. Um, some of the noise on the ground was just kind of it was tricking the cables, uh, tricking the signal. To figure out what pores is it coming from, and at a certain period of time, the signals that's coming in, it, it gets kind of mixed up. It's checking clocks, and when things get too close for comfort, it'll just go. It, it'll treat it kind of like a uh, like a hub with a uh, packet collision. It'll just say, "Nope, time to reset." And then when it goes to reset, it'll try to clock in and try to get each symbol. Or each signal trying to clock in for whatever data connections coming in to see what's, you know, what's the proper stream it should be looking at.
1: Now, Warhead, when you first came across this problem, um, you, uh, you, yes, you had to dig into some information. You had to ask, but how did you eventually arrive at the conclusion? What did your troubleshooting process look like? So, my troubleshooting process
2: was literally okay. First off, it's a device, and these ports keep resetting. Um, I could go, okay, let me get connected. I can SSH in. I can look at the logs. I can see what's going on. But I've I've done physical cabling, and I've, I've worked with some form of electronics or another enough times that the first question should be, what's plugged in? Because anytime you connect two things with wire, you have electrical connections going between them, whether you like it or not. So when I heard the ports keep resetting, my brain goes, hmm, I might have seen this one before. Well, the moment I said, what cables are you using? And they said, oh, I'm using shielded twisted pair. Okay, this is, this is good stuff. Great. There's a problem, though, that everybody forgets, is that prefabricated high-end shielded twisted pair actually connects the grounds of the units that it's plugged into. So the, that base that Will was talking about, That is based off of the ground that the controller sees inside of the switch and the router and the modem. When that ground starts to fluctuate all over the place because you've got a bunch of people using it as a reference but no way to actually say this is zero because it's not actually common, they get confused. They don't know which way is up or down anymore because there's so much noise on this common line that everybody is using as a reference point. When I heard that he's using those prefabs, I knew, oh, I see what the problem is. I knew it right away. My next question was Okay, did you ground your router, switch, and modem? Well, no, the power supplies have three prongs. Okay, knowing the model that this person has, quick question for you then. If the power supply has three prongs, does your device have a barrel connector? Now, for anybody that's listening, this is very straightforward, but Will, what's the difference between a three-prong NEMA connector that you would get on a commercial switch and a prosumer that with a barrel connector?
0: Barrel connector is only gonna give you DC and it's gonna be positive and well, ground.
2: Right. In this case, negative, right? It's not actually transmitting raw ground up the line. Your power supply, the converter brick, has it, but your device doesn't get that through the wire. Correct.
0: Um, It attempts to in the absence of, uh, of a tied earth ground, which works as long as it stays within that device.
2: Right. But now let's connect three of them together and we're going to connect that outer quote unquote ground that they all think is earth together. So now we've got three separate power supplies across three separate devices, all making a little bit of noise because they're high
1: frequency electronics. And now we might have a problem. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this, Will, can you, uh, can you explain what differential signaling is and how it relates here?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, this particular issue was like on the shielding on the outside but normally um and the re- recommendation to resolve the solution by uh Jason was to use an unshielded twisted pair that didn't have that ground plane um but uh normally we use differential signaling uh in terms of like the shielded or the well it's the twisted pair the reason why they're in pairs is for differential signaling which means that when you go to send a signal one like uh, Let's say the positive or like the the in phase signal is going to be on one side, and then they basically invert the signal and send it down on the other <clears throat> uh so when it goes down the wires and you introduce noise, you're going to see the noise the same on both wires. but when you go to combine the signal on the other side to to bring it back into one you know signal that you want to look at instead of like the the inversion at the same time. Um, essentially, the noise cancels out, and you get two times the actual signal coming in, as long as you have or with zero, you no know, actual gain on the uh, amplifier, which turns out to be that you can send down long lines or in noisy environments inherently with the design to. Have uh, a high common mode rejection ratio, which is just a fancy way of saying it removes the noise for you.
1: So if I was to condense that down into English, it might sound something like this. It, we know there's a scientific principle that is true that if I take a if I take a audio wave or a sound, any kind of wave, and I duplicate that wave and send it back against each other, the waves will cancel each other out. If you could somehow take the sound of a car and project that sound back exactly as it were back to the car, you would cancel the noise of the car out and you wouldn't hear it driving down the road what we're doing in this
0: actually with that um noise canceling headphones actually work on a similar principle as differential signaling uh, differential amplification which is what they do is they use destructive interference on that which is when you hear noise like a jet engine while you're on a plane what it does is it actually takes the signal with the microphone flips it and then you're actually hearing the exact opposite uh, the the exact inversion of the signal coming from the jet engine, mm-hmm. and what happens is on your ear it's canceled out. That is how noise canceling works.
1: Right, and uh, and 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 so and and so a a balanced audio cable in the in the audio world works very very similarly. We're going to send a signal down one wire. We're going to send a, the same exact signal down another wire because the noise will be essentially what we're doing is we're creating an antenna. And so when we have a very long cable, we've created an antenna An antenna will try to receive noise. If it can't get a radio station, it will pick up the nearest available electrical noise, which is typically a the hum of an AC uh, uh, AC power source. And uh, when we get to the end of the cable, we invert one of the wires and 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 then combine those signals back together to cancel out the noise, thus creating a, a cable that we can run for 100 feet and not have any buzz
0: exactly that is perfect
1: okay so now there's going to be a couple of people in the audience and they're sitting there and going man you guys have i thought this was a linux show and you guys have totally lost me i don't know what you're talking about and i have no interest in electrical engineering but the truth is there this completely perfectly ties into linux in a lot of ways because how warhead went about solving this problem uh as you said root cause analysis. He looked at what the actual cause. He understood the problem. And too often in IT and I have cleaned enough, I have cleaned up enough after my competitors that I know this to be true, people will go into a into a facility or into an environment and they will solve a problem just by treating the symptoms. Oh, that works. All oh, let's install this hack around or this this cover up or whatever it is. They've not solved anything. They've just hidden the symptoms from the user. And as you and I were talking yesterday and you said, no, the proper way to go about troubleshooting the proper way to go about solving problems is to identify the root cause and terminate it and of course in order to effectively evaluate the root cause know what it is and know how to fix it you have to have a personal uh, bank of knowledge that you build up from experience and or reading and or education and you have done this uh in the linux world by because you're an electrical engineer by trade you're a linux nerd by choice you have done this, and you believe that a big part of that is getting away from Ubuntu.
0: Um, it's helped out. Uh, I, uh the re- the most recent set of talks I've done with uh, Jason, um, both at Self and uh, GitLab commit, um, were on using or was on using Kubernetes on a ARM-based cluster, and we had to build our own containers and that kind of stuff. And the only way that we could simply make that work and to have proper package management is because of the simplicity of the underlying system that arch provides where it is upstream friendly and you get your hands on what is raw linux um so i could see what they're doing on a different distro and it's like oh i can apply it to arch linux because it's simple there um and there really isn't that much type of specialization in terms of uh, configuration that's gone on with different applications. Um, but it's that simplicity in the architecture and not necessarily in the install process that has opened up my ability to make containers smaller without having to use Docker um, understanding what's actually going into them and addressing concerns with both Kubernetes and containers Just by understanding the process and simplifying it, when you just because you see the moving parts, um, your life becomes a lot simpler. Versus if you're using something like Ubuntu, you're normally going to be tied to that. Um, was it to like the installer and that process which is good you get to install it and it's a good way for people to get their hands uh, get their feet wet Um, but to really dive into the distro sometimes it takes a little bit extra work because there are some very talented people that made some choices to make it simpler that unfortunately if you didn't catch that memo it will make your life harder trying to have it play nicer with other applications other software.
1: Warhead Se, let me ask you this. One of the things that initially drew us into an hour long conversation over dinner one night was I asked you a very open ended, very blunt question that I didn't expect a great answer from and instead got one. And I said, how do you go about learning or teaching yourself about technology? Because it seems like every time I ask you about something you you're like a walking encyclopedia and you just go oh well here it is blah, blah, blah. I said how do you do that and you gave me a very interesting answer about um imagining technology in your head and starting from what you know explain that
2: uh, <laughs> I'll try um that was some time ago but I'll do my best to paraphrase what apparently is a solid memory for you so the biggest thing that people have is when they approach something they get daunted by how complex it is or how new it is to them or anything like that the reality is everything is much simpler than it looks but maybe not the entire thing is that simple when you look at it as a whole break things down based on what you do know make a few small assumptions cuz you can always test those assumptions afterwards i mean don't do that with 240 volts but you know if you're not sure if it's a driver problem or your display's wacky well You should be able to figure out whether or not it's your display pretty quickly, right? Just try a different display. That's not really that different when you're going, well, I have a laptop and I know on Windows it has two buttons, but on Linux it's only ever got one. What's going on here? If you know that it's possible, then there's got to be something you're missing. Rule out everything you do know about and look into the things that you don't know about yet. You can use it to learn, or you can jump right in and get her fixed.
1: Dago, if you were going to leave people with one piece of advice in continuing to explore technology and coming up with more effective troubleshooting strategies, what would it be?
0: Um, learn your basics. Um, the surprisingly, uh, the only reason why I have uh, a really good background in like diagnosing stuff is because um, it isn't because like you know I have. Uh, parents and grandparents that are engineers is because they taught me how to be a really good technician first and just to look at some of the details and just ask questions because sometimes a dumb question can come out to be a can turn out to be a really simple and smart answer for a complicated problem
1: i like that and you know the truth is there is no such thing as a stupid question i i teach classes um from time to time and i always tell students There is no such thing as a dumb question. There are just ineffective teaching methods. What doesn't work for you just because something works for other students doesn't necessarily mean it works for you. We all learn differently, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, How about you, Warhead SC? Where do you see the the disconnect in the Linux community as far as exploring technology and bettering people um, to understand the underlying technology and understand what it is they're doing? How can people improve and get to explore technology at a deeper level?
2: You know what? I, I kind of just slightly correct you there. Is I don't think that it's a drawback of you know, people not digging into things. I think it, it's much wider than just the Linux community, but within Linux, start with what you're interested in. Find something that strikes your fancy and look a little deeper. You'd be amazed how many things you've touched before and never knew. When you start to learn how those things go together, you can apply it to many other parts of your system, whether it's how to change the graphics How to or physically change the graphics card and remember to change the driver so you can actually get a display when you come back, right? These are simple things individually that are made up of complex parts. Look at everything, break them down, walk through them. You will end up understanding it and being able to do it twice as fast the next time around.
0: I have a quick example with Ansible if you want. To yeah, add. yeah. So when I was diving into Ansible, I started realizing after talking to Greg um when he came up to start the Ansible Meetup, um, he started talking about how Red Hat just loves or like loves um, ansible because it's just essentially SSH and Python. And when you look at the python actually when you look at the ansible uh, config library, you start realizing, holy crap, they literally are using the stock config library. And by learning and playing with the stock config library, I learned I can do all sorts of uh, wonderful little tricks that makes my life easier for putting in variables. And I was like, oh, hey, I wonder if I can put in Jinja 2 variables and stuff like that. And I started getting into it, and literally how I started playing with Ansible was because I knew Python, and all the stock libraries I haven't dug into were over there. I dug into those, and allowed me to write other applications with, you know, uh, with under with a better understanding of how to use like a config file even for it um, just by looking at the root technology. And it goes to show that the simplicity, which is Python, you know, we can download it. We can start playing with it right now. And you can go to the config library and start playing with it. And you're playing with the same exact tools that Red Hat is using for configuration management and making a ton of money off of it.
1: Quick question for you. Uh Echelon X in the chat room says, I get how sampling a frequency to constant rate results in samples. I don't understand how it's reversed to determine the original frequency or waveform, especially since I would think sound waves contain many constantly changing frequencies and constantly changing amplitudes. How do you know what the next sample point to refer to a change in amplitude versus a change in frequency or how many frequency on top of each other?
0: That question I will answer in the chat, and it'll take some time because that's way beyond the scope of this. But uh, in terms of like what we were talking about with the differential amplifier, um, that's literally all in the continue in the uh, all in the continuous wave analog domain, and um, literally it is just taking the signal and flipping it. Um, you can sometimes take even take an op amp and just kind of change how it's being used to invert the other side of a signal. Poorly, but you can get a better understanding that way.
1: Dago Red, Warhead SC, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the program. We'll get you back real soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, We appreciate it. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. If you'd like to read the question and you'd like to read the answer, I invite you to join us in our interactive chat room. That's ask, pound ask Noah show in freenode. You can join. I'm in the chat room every single week. I have it up on the screen while I'm working during the week. And of course we have it while we're. Doing the show, you can write in it live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to take your feedback at the end of the show. Uh, Denver writes in and says, "No, hi Noah, congratulations on your show. I recall in one of your very early shows you demonstrated your father's setup, especially the practice management software you installed for him. That is open source. Can you please send me a link to it? What is the name of it? One of my friends wanted something open source, and I recalled your show earlier. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Denver." So the software that my dad's clinic is using is called uh, OpenEMR, and I really like it. Uh, It's very, very good for what it is. Does it have all of the features that um, your Epic software might have? No, but it is a it is a it is a it is a practice management software that can fit clinics, hospitals, the whole nine yards and i would suggest you check it out. They are also desperately in need of funding. So if you uh if you're going to be using it or if you have a relative or friend that's going to be use it, i'd suggest maybe making a contribution to them as they are continually trying to seek the um the the upper levels of certification so that it can be used in 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 places without taking a hit from Medicare which is uh a long way of saying the government penalizes you if you don't use software that they approve of. And so the because it's open source, um, they have to come up with that certification process by themselves. Well, not the process, but they have to go through the certification process themselves, and it's very expensive. Graham writes in and says, I'm looking for an open source alternative to Skype so we can record interviews and stream them live. We currently use OBS to stream with an NDI plugin to capture guests from Skype. Do you have any suggestions? Uh, I have two. You could use Jitsi Meet, which is pretty popular. My new favorite for doing video chat is actually um, Matrix. I believe it's Matrix has a WebRTC plugin and allows you to just run it inside of a web browser. And uh, the Mumble group and I have used that on occasion to add video to uh, to Mumble. And it works very well, but either Jitsi or Web, or, or uh, some WebRTC solution, the open source one of that, I believe, would be called Matrix. And I would check that out and see what you think. Um, let's see here. Steven writes in and says, hello, Noah, as always, I enjoy listening to the show. It's a great service to the community for the caller that was disabled. And needed VNC capabilities. It appears that OpenSUSE installs the tools by default. It just needs them turned on in the remote admin tool. Tiger VNC is pre installed, as is a remote desktop client. Thanks. Now, we paired uh, that guy who called in and said that he needed some help uh, with his VNC setup with an Ultraspeed technician to get that set up for him, but I included this in the show. Because if there's anybody that is listening to the show and saying to themselves, "Self, I too would like to be able to have the ability to VNC into a particular computer. I wish I knew of an operating system or a distro that would be able to do that." And uh, so I just wanted to include that uh, that OpenSuse is a distro that 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 has that capability. Also to note, um, if you were to head over to LinuxDelta.com and you were to sort distros uh, by desktop distros. By the most rated, what you would find is that the most rated distro is OpenSUSE uh, with 95 reviews and second only to Linux Mint. So what that tells me is in the same way that when I see a product selling gangbusters on Amazon and it has 7000 reviews or whatever, and I can and I can I can I can discern from that 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 particular product is the product that most people are buying and are happy with. By the same token, I can discern that the distro that most people in our community are happy with is OpenSUSE, and that makes me want to give it another shot. So that's I'm going to be doing that uh, over the next week or so. Hey, have a great week, everyone. We'll see you back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central.